but what this has really shown is that public school is a gigantic band-aid that is plopped over all these problems with our society. So I hope that in addition to how can we change education, I hope we also can have a conversation about how can we change the systems in our country so that education doesn't have to do the heavy lifting it does. There, there's comfort in something that's been done enough that you know what works and what doesn't and it's safe, but we have to mix that up with things that are risky because otherwise we're not going to get to those great successes. This pandemic has forced students to learn at home and educators have had to make a fast pivot to remote teaching. This season, I'm talking with teachers and students across the United States to find the silver linings of our situation, to find out what matters most in school, and to use those lessons as we reimagine the future of education. This is Change the Narrative, the podcast about innovation in education and the workplace. I'm your host and tour guide, Michael Hernandez. Ben Walker teaches middle school science in Anchorage, Alaska at Romig Middle School. He is National Board Certified, the 2018 Alaska State Teacher of the Year, the 2019 National Awardee for the NSTA Shell Science Teaching Award, and a member of the inaugural National Geographic Teacher Advisory Council. Ben believes connections and context matter as much as content and works to give his students authentic science experiences that are relevant to their world, both locally and globally. Ben loves to collaborate with other teachers and takes risks and experience discomfort to grow his pedagogy. His wife is also an award-winning science teacher, and they have two elementary-aged children and a new puppy, Althea. Uh, ben enjoys running and getting outside in his free time, as well as creating, whether through writing, photography, and film, or DIY home projects. One of the best compliments Ben has heard about his own place in the world of education was from a parent and local advocate who called him a, quote, positive agitator of the status quo. And I can't think of a better label for somebody than that. <laughs> I think that's really great. Although knowing you, Ben, um, I don't see you as like a, an agitator so much as somebody who just leads through example. So um, anyway, I'm thrilled to have you here, Ben. We met through the National Geographic Teacher Advisory Council, and I'm so excited that you're here with me to, to talk about these, uh, these topics. Yeah, yeah, it's great to be here. It's actually kind of funny that uh, I, uh, I had... The current, our current mayor's kids, I had them a long time ago, and, and that was the mayor's wife that said that, who I've worked with on a number of things, and she's a big, uh, a big immigrant uh, rights person and, and things like that. So um, a lot of that comes from there, kind of shaking things up here in Alaska with people who are a little complacent with, with the way things are. Um, could you tell us a little bit about um, your school? Like, what are your students like? What are the demographics of that school? Yeah, you know, when you think of Alaska or Anchorage, um, you may have preconceived things, but it's actually a pretty widespread um, city, both geographically and in terms of uh, the population. Uh, our district is huge. We have almost 48,000 kids in our district, um, so we're a gigantic district. Uh, the whole city is one district, which has its pluses and minuses. One of the big pluses is that the funding's not relative to property taxes, like in some places. So there's not that big gap of funding between schools um, throughout the throughout the district. Uh, Romig itself is right in the heart of Anchorage. It's about 800 kids between seventh and eighth grade, and it has everyone from someone like the mayor's kids to the kids in. Uh, you know, we got a trailer park in our area. We have um, some really um, hard hard parts of town. Um, so it's kind of a microcosm of. The world really or Anchorage um, all in this one this one building uh, my kids uh, range everywhere from neighborhood kids and I also teach a, in a special program um, for highly gifted students so they come from 
all over town. Um, some of them, you know, come from, you know, 45 minute drive in just to go to this program for these two years. So, uh, the whole gamut and which has been really interesting during all this because um, there's been things that have, have happened that I wouldn't have predicted in terms of who's, who's managed to succeed in this and who's managed to not succeed in this. Um, so we're kind of processing that in terms of the fall. If we have to do this again, how can we make sure that we fill in those, those differences so that everyone has a chance to engage in this? Wow. Tell me about that. So what were some of those surprises? I just, you know, you would think that if, if you were to say, okay, based on everything I know about education so far, if I remove the school part, um, I predict these kids are going to succeed and these kids are not. And there's been a large chunk of that, but there's been some very high achieving, well-supported kids who have had a lot of difficulty navigating online school and things from home. And there's been other kids who really struggled in the classroom who now that maybe it's because they don't have the distraction or maybe it's because they can work at a different time of the day or whatever, have just nailed out some of this content. And, you know, the content, it's not the same content. It's pretty straightforward online stuff. Um, but some of it, we would have predicted the flip-flop, you know, that uh, the high achievers would have knocked these things out right away and been done. And the other ones would have taken longer or needed more support. And, you know, there's a lot of flipping on that. And I was, I was surprised by that. Um, and I don't know exactly how to help that in the fall. Um, one of the big things we want to do is kind of talk to the kids about that. You know, what, what, what was missing for you that prevented you from doing that? Was it just the timing of being so abrupt? Was it you're, you know, trying to manage things at home with other factors? Was it the content itself? Um, certain things we can influence, certain things we can't. We can't change a parent's work schedule or, you know, having to take care of a sibling, but we can certainly supplement how we deliver online content um, and change it. So that's really surprising. I mean, I think we all have stereotypes uh, or preconceived ideas of other people or systems. And it's nice to be surprised and be proven wrong every once in a while. So yeah, I guess figuring that out would be really interesting. Like, why is that happening for those, those groups of people? So Ben, you and I have been friends for a while since we've met uh, at National Geographic Teacher Advisory Council. Um, and we've talked off and on during the pandemic and how school closures have affected us. And you seem to be wrestling a lot with the, the situation. You know, you were saying before we started this recording, um, some days are better than others. Um, and, and I think everybody sort of is handling it differently. Um, you know, this series is, is allegedly about, you know, the silver linings, the things that we're finding that we're learning about ourselves, that we're learning about school that really matters. And so I'm wondering, you know, despite these struggles that you've got, you've got the two younger kids that are elementary aged, um, you've got a spouse who was also a teacher, like all those commitments, you know, is there something that you actually really secretly like about working from home? You mentioned the dog, the dog, uh, Althea. So I'm, I'm a big deadhead. So I think of Touch of Grey, which has the line, every silver lining has a touch of grey. Um, so I think that's kind of where I am, is that uh, I definitely have silver linings, but I they always come with the, the context of the cloud as well. Um, one thing I was thinking that I secretly like is, you know, the being somewhat of an introvert, most of my social life comes from school, um, during the, during the school year, at least, uh, you know, when you put out so much energy for other people during the day, you come home, I'm just not the person that then wants to go out again and socialize. So the cloud would be that I'm not getting that right now from, from my colleagues and especially from my students, but the silver lining is that 
I have kind of a lower social anxiety because I don't have to have forced interaction with people or, you know, the, the potluck that I really don't want to go to, or, um, you know, the forced, the forced bonding that, that people try to do in some of these situations or the awkward copy room conversation when someone brings up politics that are opposite yours or something, you know? So that's kind of my secret thing is that all of my social interactions are very intentional and chosen and mutual, you know, um, other than, you know, zooms and things like that that come up. Um, so that's kind of been a silver lining. And, and of course, you know, I think the one you can hear from most people is just getting to spend more slower time with my kids and my wife um, and not just be like, okay, here's, here's the pause before we go to the next thing. Now we can, now we can have our home life as the thing and then we can insert intentionally insert these other activities into that. So that's been nice. Um, I secretly, you know, obviously all the other stuff, like I really like being able to go to the bathroom when I want to go to the bathroom. We have one bathroom in like my end of the hall. So if I don't get there at the right time, I might have to wait. Um, <laughs> things like that are, are different. At uh, school, you mean? <laughs> at school, yeah, yeah. I, I, in my house, I know there's always a bathroom available. Um, and I also really like not having, this seems kind of odd, but I really like not having to figure out what pants to wear. Like I can just, I can wear shorts. I can, if I'm working outside, I can just come back in and if I have a call and put on a nice shirt and I don't have to change my work pants. Like <laughs> it's the little details, right? <laughs> um, that's great. So you've been trapped with your two kids and your wife in this house in Alaska uh, for a few months. What have you learned about yourself while being on quarantine? First, we kind of learn our shortcomings, at least I did, um, before I start to learn like, oh, this is, these are things I'm really good at or these are things I really like. One of the big ones is I kind of need external discipline. Um, I have trouble managing my schedule and things like that without something forcing me to do it, like a start time and end time to school or, you know, uh, grading periods, things like that. Um, I find myself, you know, at 1130 at night being like, oh, like, you know, I just stay up a little bit later or whatever. Um, whereas when I knew I had to get up at six and get the kids ready for school and, and go to school myself, you know, I would have been in bed by 10. Um, so I found that out about myself and, and I'm getting better at it trying to uh, discipline some of these habits or, or you're walking by, you know, we don't have an unlimited snack room at school, but Hey, we have an unlimited snack room here. Um, <laughs> and if there's kind of a, a board board moment of the day or something, it's like, Oh, maybe I'll just have this, you know, cheese stick or whatever. And, and so I'm working on some of those things, but I haven't managed to run almost every day, which is nice. So yeah, that's one thing I've learned is that kind of the, the system, the organization of the system of teaching kind of keeps me disciplined because I have all these people counting on me. Um, you know, to deliver the next day or to get the, get the work back to them or, or whatever. And I have meetings and I have leadership things that, you know, other staff members are relying on me for. And when, when that's not as clear, I tend to fill my time with maybe non-productive stuff more than I should. It's interesting. Um, non-productive, like I was having a conversation with my students earlier today um, in a Zoom meeting for my, with my journalism students. And we we're talking about how do we use our time and what is considered unproductive? Like, is it unproductive to do nothing? Is it unproductive to take a nap? Is it unproductive to draw or paint or bake bread? Um, and how do we measure that, you know? Um, I think it's interesting uh, if we look at those metrics and are we trying to apply the same thing to school? And maybe those are some of the challenges that we've had with school. You're talking about your kids who didn't succeed in the classroom, but they're succeeding when they're at home. Um, and I wonder if, that mix of things. I'm talking to some of these other teachers as well, like talking about how they can mix their day up. It doesn't have to be like solid work and then they take a break. Or like you're saying, like I'm so wiped out at the end of the day, I don't want to talk to anybody. 
um, and then you lose those relationships with your with your wife or your children. And so I wonder if those quote unquote unproductive activities are actually really productive. It's just um, a different kind of productive. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. And I guess that that's one way to look at it. I mean, it needs a, a context of that word. How have you kept your sanity through all of this? Just, you know, uh, I think when you have other people relying on you, especially a seven and a nine-year-old, that's, that's external. Hey, I, you have to keep your sanity. I can't lose it. Um, especially when, you know, during, during our time together, um, running, I fig I found that, you know, um, oftentimes at school I would run at the end of the day and that would be to get rid of whatever was built up during the day, oftentimes from, uh, the stress of, of, um, you know, things out of my control or leadership or whatever. Um, and I've switched that now I try to run in the morning so that it sets me up for the day rather than, you know, trying to get rid of it at the end. Um, and I try to do something that's been on my to-do list and just try to knock it out. Like uh, the other day we've had these, these two, it seems like a weird story, but we had these two sinks that have been slow running for like ever. Um, and the other day I was just like, I just got to do this. Like I need something to, I need something to kind of be cathartic and be done. And so I fixed them and, you know, took them apart and cleaned them and whatever. And now we have perfectly running sinks and, and that felt great. <laughs> so I try to do intersperse something that clears that list. Right. hundred percent. Like I totally get that. And it, it is the little things that you put off that now you have the time to not put off if you really choose to. Um, and I totally agree with you on the running piece too. I also run um, and I wasn't running as much as I am now. I'm running almost every day now. And same thing. I would run after school to like burn off the stress. Um, I feel like the energy piece is really important and especially because there's so much sitting going on. What do you, um, what have you found that you like best about remote work, either personally or professionally? I mean, you talked about the bathroom situation, but, uh, <laughs> um, what else do you like about remote work? You know, again, with this, with this touch of gray thing, but I enjoy the, the autonomy that comes when you really don't have somebody constantly watching like in the building. Um, so I do like that kind of being on my own and not have that statement of, well, we can't have you do that because not all teachers are going to do that. And it's like, well, now I can do that because nobody is watching me and making sure that I'm doing it. You know, I enjoy not commuting. You know, I enjoy just waking up and getting into my day the way that feels natural rather than worrying about the rush in the morning and getting out. And uh, I enjoy the, like we talked about earlier, the intentional, you know, collaboration rather than uh, collaboration that sometimes, you know, involves people that don't want to be there. Uh, I enjoy spending time with my family and just being able to take a five minute break or 10 minute break and do something with them um, or help them with something. I enjoy the ability to move blocks around. So instead of a first hour of always being 8.15 to 9.15 or whatever, and that would be my mode, I can do that work at 6 p.m. or I can do that work after the kids go to bed. Um, we already do a lot of work after the kids go to bed with grading and, and things like that. But now, you know, I really have kind of like the ability to Lego my days, right? I can just take the Lego apart and rebuild it the way I need to. And, and, uh, and that's, that's really nice. That's fantastic. I love that. And I wonder if that's the same for your students too. It's interesting that you can look at the analytics uh, and every assignment has the date and, and time on it. Um, and so you, you kind of notice the pattern and you, you say, oh, okay, what's well, the morning? So I'm probably going to get three or four things from so-and-so, um, you know, and, and then, oh, it's the middle of the day. And then sure enough, this other 
group of kids get their stuff done. And then, then there's the ones where you're like, whoa, 1 p.m. or 1 a.m., 2 a.m., what's going on in this house? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. We found a, a, a girl who's super bright. I mean, she's, she's, her reading is, you know, up there 98th percentile, and, and she really struggled. She had a lot of attendance issues and things like that. And it took her maybe two weeks or, or longer than most students to even log in. Um, but then looking at her timestamp for, for the language arts, I was talking with our language arts teacher and this student was just like spending a couple hours from like 10 PM to 12 AM and then passed, passed everybody up and ended up finishing language arts before the, the deadline. Um, so I think for some kids, if they, if they can find that sweet spot, I think it's a really meaningful thing for them, especially if you know, they have other responsibilities at home. I know this, this student is a caretaker for, for a younger sibling um, or, or other pressures or, you know, things that influence their, in their ability to complete stuff. Um, I think that the flexibility is huge if we are having multiple, you know, devices needed at home and you only have one device or you have, you know, for example, the, some of the hotspots that are being handed out for people have limited bandwidth um, or limited speeds, you know, and you can't have uh, four, four people zooming at the same time on a, on a, on the free Wi-Fi hotspot. Um, so having flexibility for that, so those sort of things, I think uh, has helped kids a lot. I asked some students this morning actually about their sweet spot and I'm like, when's your best, what's your sweet spot for doing math? And one kid's like, between 10 and 11 a.m. I'm like, okay. And this other kid's like, I don't have one. And the other kid's like, 11 p.m. And, you know, again, it's the conformity thing. If you don't sit in that desk between these hours and do your thing, then I'm going to judge you about how good of a student you are rather than, you know, everybody is unique and we all process differently. I, th- I love that. That's a great idea. I wonder if that's something we can, we can keep. And, I really like this idea of tracking the metrics. I wonder how many schools or teachers track the timing of when the assignments were completed. I think that's really fascinating. That might tell us a lot about, uh, about who, who our students are and what their concerns are and what their needs are. Um, that's just an interesting way to look at data. It's really cool. I think, yeah, I think, you know, the more we can try to do that, and of course, you have to have both sides. You have to have your, your data, then you have to have your story behind the data. But to, to start with the data, you know, it would be really interesting to see what percentage of, of work is turned in what time of day and also by who, what subjects is it, what grade levels, um, what kind of family situations it is. Is it, you know, everyone with siblings uh, is turning stuff in late or, you know, later in the day. Um, we had an interesting conversation because our language arts teacher was noticing that uh, our boys were doing much better than our girls which for middle school, if you've ever taught middle school, it's actually opposite in the classroom because <laughs> yeah. it's such a difficult time and, and our boys are starting to, you know. Oh God, it's so awkward. Yes, and the, the uh, you know, hole in their, holes in their brain are still being filled in. Um, and so we were talking about, well, what is that? You know, is that just merely having the, the distraction of the classroom taken away or is there something else about the way it's being delivered that they, they are into. And so it'd be interesting to have those conversations, especially if, if we need to be ready to do this for longer. Yeah, I think so. Um, and that's interesting. This is the second time you've said it in our conversation, the distraction of the classroom, like kids can focus better at home. It sounds like what you're saying in some cases or in many cases, maybe in the case of these boys, um, than they could in the class. And usually you think it's the opposite. Can you tell me about that? What's distracting about school versus being at home? You know, I think a lot of it is the social aspect. And, and I think it's different for every kid. And I think some kids 
and maybe this is why they're struggling in this environment. Some, some students are really social learners and, and that may be gender related or not. I have no idea. Um, it's not my field and sociology is not my field, but, uh, I think that not having, you know, your buddies around or not having the, the gossip, the hubbub of the day, or, you know, I, I think of, uh, just the random things that in 45 minutes can set a class off in a different direction. You know, somebody, you know, does something with a pencil or somebody, you know, passes gas or whatever it is. Next thing you know, you've lost 10 minutes because everyone wants to jump I mean, on that train, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's like a faculty meeting, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and when that's removed, you know, I think that a lot of kids for, I think for the, you know, when you're talking about kind of the, the very easy, to acquire concepts that a lot of these online platforms at least start with for those, you know, it's probably really easy to just, Oh, I got to read and I got to comprehend the reading. Then I select my little buttons or I type in my little thing. Like, I think that probably is a lot easier to do without 29, 30 other people around you who all have something going on on their own, you know? Well, I hear a Ted talk coming out of all this. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's just, it'll just be about passing gas. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's science. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, we talked about a lot of these already, but what do you think are some of the advantages of teaching remotely, either for yourself um, or for your kids? For science, especially, you know, if we can figure out a way to do it in a meaningful way, which I'm still struggling with in an equitable way, the idea that you don't have to have a, a capsulated 45 minute lesson. Um, so it's very hard to get get going and get right to the right spot. And then it's, Oh, well, I guess we got to clean up and, and maybe we'll try tomorrow if you remember. Um, so that would be nice. Right. It's, it's, it's longer times to do deeper, deeper kind of, uh, cycles of learning. So that's, that, that would be mine. The other thing, you know, we've already talked about the being able to flex, make your day a little bit. Um, the idea that kids are going to get to practice some of the things they're going to be facing when they, you know, move up into college and into the working world. If you're working for a company that has many different buildings, you're going to end up on Zoom calls or conference calls with people. You're going to have to learn how to work in teams with people that you, maybe you've never met. Um, so some of that stuff, I think, in the long run will help kids. We had a really interesting conversation just yesterday. We contacted a bunch of former students and we had about six former students uh, connect with our current students. And and uh, so the youngest was uh, this year's valedictorian from our high, one of our high schools, all the way up to, uh, I think our oldest was a 30-year-old. And they had some really interesting things to say because they've done various online learning. One of the biggest things they said was, you know, you, you got to realize it's not going to be the same. And it seems to like things that should seem really simple sometimes are really difficult to do online because it's just you and you have to be disciplined enough and you have to figure out how it works for you. They were responsible for their own pace. So if they were ready to go ahead, they could go ahead. If they needed to slow back because they needed help, they, you know, no one was giving them a hard time. They didn't have to be embarrassed about it. They could say, you know, I need to reread this thing right now. or I need to go back three modules and figure out where I am. Um, so there's definitely pluses that they see um, that, that was kind of interesting to me because they've done it everything from just like high school classes to, you know, continuing education as an adult for being an accountant or all these other things. They've had to do a lot of stuff online. Appreciated them coming back and talking to our kids about it because as 12-year-olds just being thrown in this environment, it's been kind of jarring for them. Um, so it's nice to have accomplished people say, it's, it's going to be. <laughs> what are some of the lessons that we've learned as educators that you think you want to keep and implement once the pandemic is over? It's forced us to get into a feedback loop with our kids that I don't think we do enough in school because we've really had to say, you know, what does it look like on your end? Does, does this work for you? Does this not work for you? And solicit their advice. And those are all things that 
I think help us as educators. I think too many educators don't ask kids what's working for them and what's not. And I think that is for a number of reasons. And number one, probably being you don't want to hear it if it's going to be a negative thing. And it's, and it's vulnerable to ask that. Um, but I think it's important to, and, and hopefully, you know, once we get whatever's next, people continue to do that and, and ask. Um, and I hope kids and, and families continue to speak out. Think about the kid who's hesitant to just come up to your desk and talk. What is that kid going to do now? Are they really going to send you an email? Are they really going to log into your Zoom? Worried about that there might be other kids in there and they're going to have to ask this question. Um, so I hope teachers push kids to do that more. Yeah, that's so true. I think having that respect for the students as like a, a human being. And, you know, I was talking uh, in an earlier episode about how teachers are struggling and they feel so anxiety ridden, like figuring out the technology or how this is going to work, or I can't give that test the way I used to give it and I can't lecture anymore and all of these things. And they have to figure this stuff out. And that's a good reminder that that's how our students feel like every day in our classrooms, right? They're we're learners too. And so I think that's great that we can model that vulnerability and like call me in my BS, right? Like, am I missing it? Like you guys tell me, like, how am I helping you or not helping you here? Because ultimately that's what we're here to do, right? I think that, yeah. And, you know, it needs to be that collaborative thing. And in the classroom, a lot of times you can pick up on that just by the cues of the students. And that's not there anymore. You don't get the perplexed looks. You don't get them whispering to each other about what the heck's going on. Um, and so that needs to be built in in some way and it needs to be a wide representative of students. You know, it can't just be the loud ones or the, the, um, the ones that are willing to talk. It's, it's the ones that you need to go find and, and figure out why they're struggling or, or why something's not working. I, I hope that teachers remain willing to take risks and, and try things out. Uh, in our district, a lot of it was, it, it was mandated. You mandate, you have to use this online program. They say, oh, well, I remember that time I really hated this switch, but look, it turned out okay. So let me try it again. Yeah. I was just talking to Daryl Washington about that too. And she says, no one will do anything unless they're forced to, <laughs> uh, which is so true, right? Or it's painful. So I've got to move. Um, and so I guess in a situation like this, we don't have a choice, but I wonder if we can impose our own pain or impose our own like change that we just have to force ourselves to do it. Um, and we usually don't, but it's sort of an interesting mindset to take um, being risk takers. I think that's really great. And obviously the system doesn't always support that. You know, your job's on the line, your standardized test scores are used to judge you as a teacher and to keep you employed and all of these things. So we definitely have some, some realistic challenges uh, that prevent teachers from taking risks and from being creative too. So, but um, if we could integrate that into the system, that would definitely be great, I think. Because you seem to be pretty comfortable taking these risks, although you do struggle as well. Um, what advice would you give to colleagues who are maybe a little less comfortable taking risks and adapting to technology or this new workflow? My dad had this saying, and he always used to say it when like he's building something or fix something, and then there was that that test to see, hey, is this going to work or not? And his response was always, either will or won't. Like you only have two options, um, <laughs> but it's not going to do anything if you don't like try it. Um, so that's the thing, you know. Things fail, things fail a lot, you know, and yet that's part of it. But you got to go with all those failures to, to end up with your, the one success that you're going to keep for, you know, your whole career, keep for a long period of time. Um, it's always fun to, to talk to kids about when you're trying new things, because if you don't tell them it's new, they always assume you've done it a whole bunch of times. And then they say, well, what happened when you guys did this last year? 
And it's like, I got no idea because we didn't do it last year. <laughs> um, and they always appreciate that, that someone has, is trying something new with them and letting them kind of be the first ones to try a new thing. Um, so I hope teachers understand that our students like that. You know, there, there's comfort in something that's been been um, done enough that you know what works and what doesn't and it's safe. But we have to mix that up with things that are risky because otherwise we're not going to get to those great successes. And isn't that science? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it is. And it's, it's innovation, right? You just see it iterate and you iterate and you iterate. It's so true. Again, it's like life skills, right? And I love this idea you were talking about, about trying something new for the first time and bringing the kids along with you. I love that I've done that several times and the kids are like, well, can we see an example from what they did before? I'm like, no, you're the first ones to do it. (laughs) And uh, so that's kind of a cool place to be, I think. Um, So we've talked about a lot of the silver linings in all of this or the touch of gray. Um, If you had to narrow it down to one silver lining uh, out of all of this that's important for you, what would it be? You know, I've thought about this a lot and I think it's different for different levels of school. Um, but I, I don't think school needs to be as controlling of young people as we are. We control everything about what they do. We control what they wear. We control where they sit. We control the schedule of the day. We control, you know, what they have to do after the day by assigning homework or not assigning homework or assigning homework they can actually do or assigning homework they can't do. And I think we need to realize that that's not the best way to have these people become successful human beings. There is a necessity of accountability that we need to have, but it doesn't have to be, you know, control. Uh, I think you you said something about surveillance pedagogy. It doesn't have to be this this so so big brotherish that we're going to control when they go to the bathroom. We're going to control uh, all these things, and that's that would be the big silver lining is can we actually shift some of that and say, okay, we should have more flipped classrooms. We should have lab-based schools where kids are spending a lot of time acquiring content through non-traditional means and then coming together to apply it, um, especially for older kids. We should have more play-based learning where we're not obsessed with, um, you know, everyone reading at a certain percentage by third grade. So hopefully people are having those conversations once, once we get to the point where, you know, we're not still just managing the crisis, right? There's pockets of individuals that aren't controlling and try to do things like this. There's pockets of individuals who realize, okay, this is what the home, home life looks like for a lot of my students. So therefore I have to reflect that in my teaching and not what my home life looks like. Um, but how can we make that a system-wide thing? Um, and it's going to be difficult because, you know, where you're talking about a huge gap between the kind of suppliers of the system, whether it's policymakers and teachers and the consumers of the system, which are students, you have a generational gap. (laughs) So we're, we're making our policies and we're making these decisions based on, frankly, 50 and 60 year old, mostly well-to-do white people. And they're making these decisions and they're saying, well, that's how school should be. And your consumer is vastly different than that. <laughs> and there's a huge gap. And that's that disconnect, you know, creates really difficult school experiences for a lot of people. 
at the same time, it also forces people to then become whatever that educational experience is, even if it's not what's best for them or best for, for all of us. Um, so I hope that's a discussion people have is, are we doing this because we always have, or are we doing this because it's the best thing? As I said, individuals do that already, but how do we have that as, as a system? And, and I really think it comes from teachers up. My good friend, Mike Soskal is going to have a book out, coming out pretty soon called Flip the System. We always talk about, you know, you can uh, do things in your classroom and then from there you can work to make the person next door do it or help the next person next door do it. And pretty soon you have a department doing, doing something fun, doing something interesting. Then you have a school, you change the school and then the next school over realizes, Oh, this school is really successful and doing really good things. We need to do it too. And that's where it's going to come from is when this is all over, it's going to come from us saying, no, no, we can't go back to that. That's not going to work. And here's why, and here's what will. And, uh, it's going to take a big drumbeat because <laughs> there's a lot of people that don't want to hear it. I also hope that we, as a society, we've always said, oh, education is the, the great equalizer or the foundation bedrock of democracy and all these platitudes. But what this has really shown is that public school is it's a gigantic Band-Aid that is plopped over just all these problems with our society from, you know, unchecked capitalism to systemic racism, to, you know, ableism, all these things that school has for years worked to hide, you know, and individuals have worked to fix it, but the system really has never worked to fix it. The system has worked to hide it and, you know, free and reduced lunch, you know, free uh, health and mental health services, you know, all the special ed services, all these things that come from outside school, school has fixed. And I'd like to have that conversation as a society as well and say, why, why should it be put on schools to do this? You know, why do teachers need to be seen as heroes? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and that's a whole nother thing to get into, but, oh, man, uh, <laughs> nuts. Yeah. but you know, that's, I, I shouldn't have to go on, on Pinterest and, and I'm, I'm not on Pinterest and see like somebody in their kitchen making, you know, a thousand different interesting things for their kindergartners. Like that shouldn't be the, their, that job of that teacher. Um, you know, I shouldn't see, you know, teachers who have to spend their own money for uh, basic needs of their students, not even school supplies, but, you know, buying, like we spend so much money on granola bars in this family. Um, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm going to do it because that's what's best. And I'm a good person and I want to do that, but I shouldn't have to be picking up a finger granola bars every time I go to Costco, just because I know a kid needs to stop by and get it. Um, so I hope that in addition to how can we change education, I hope we also can have a conversation about how can we change the systems in our country so that education doesn't have to do the heavy lifting it does. You know, everyone always says on one side, school is about reading, writing, and arithmetic. And yet you're putting all these things in school that we can't get to the reading, writing, and arithmetic because of what you have created and you're putting on schools now. Um, so it's kind of a twofold thing. What, what can we talk about inside education and then how can we get people to listen outside because I think they're going to some people are going to be ready to hear it I think the experiences that some people have had with people in their neighborhood or trying to educate their own children or things like that I think with the right conversations I think that we can we can maybe make some incremental changes um, you know obviously we're not going to flip the whole thing overnight but I'd like to have those conversations and I'd like more people to say hey have you asked the teacher 
you know is there a teacher in the room right now <laughs> um, if there's not can we get one is there, there a go. student here can we ask the student what this looks like like for example here i don't think kids should have to like fundraise to fly down to our capital to like testify on some bill they like you know i think <laughs> <laughs> like that's pretty ridiculous that that it's it's like set up to not hear hear from teachers and students you know so anyway i got off the the rails a little bit there but no you're right on the rails that's exactly <laughs> what needs to happen uh you know you can't do your job until society supports that Right. Yeah, there's, I saw a great thing today. Someone was talking about, you know, if, if you have a society that, you know, is going through this and your concern is that if you don't restart your economy, that you're going to end up without a society, then the problem's, the problem's the economy. The problem is the unchecked kind of reliance on capitalism and what it does and the gaps that it creates and then how that affects the next generation, which are the kids that we see in our building. Um, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not pleading for, for any kind of change of our governance or anything in terms of how we govern, um, you know, the system of it, but we really have to start having conversations of, is this truly a equitable and healthy, sustainable society? If all it takes is staying home for a couple of weeks to like, you know, <laughs> put people, put people on their knees, you know? Um, and I say that from an obvious place, place of privilege. I mean, I'm sitting right now in an office, like I have an office like <laughs> on a half acre and I've, you know, guaranteed income right now and, and all the technology I need and stuff. And I realize that, but we can't let that get in the way of, of feeling uncomfortable and, and having these conversations. Yeah, it's That's frustrating it. to me, you know, because I, I go to this, the school my kids go to. It's a pretty homogenous kind of school. And, and the things that just are assumed are going to, going to be done or assumed that kids can do or that families will do. Um, if that's the kind of thing going on all over the world right now with this, I'm a little concerned for a lot of our kids. <laughs> you know, I had an assignment, an at-home experiment uh, with sound and, and you needed a bowl and some plastic wrap. And I was thinking, I, I don't know if I have plastic wrap right now at my house, you know, should a kid have to go out and buy plastic wrap just to finish this assignment in the middle of a pandemic? Um, so I think if we can continue those sort of conversations after this, you know, do, do kids need an hour of homework a night from every class when they might have to go work? Um, is it necessary? You know, so those are the sort of things I hope that we have is, is are the things we're doing necessary or are the things we're doing just what we've always done and easy to continue to do or we feel like we had to go through it when we went through school. So therefore our kids need to go through it. <laughs> wow. Ben, that's like, my ears are ringing because that's the loudest mic drop I've ever heard. <laughs> this is great. Um, I'm wearing a headset, so I can't drop it. But <laughs> unless it's my wife, she'd probably get mad at me. <laughs> um, is there anything else you'd like to share about school closures or remote work? You know, there's a lot of people out there now having these conversations um, and they're just continuing. I hope that new people that are being pulled in are willing to continue to have these conversations. You know, some really interesting things have come up with not only what we talked about with surveillance pedagogy and, and controlling other people, but also with assessment and, and you know, what, what are we teaching for? You know, standardized testing. I don't think if we have a system where when the governor or the director of education or whoever it is announces the cancel canceling of standardized tests and people like cheer, then we probably shouldn't have had the standardized tests in the first place. Like, why are we doing this to ourselves if everyone's so relieved and excited when it's not going to happen that year? 
you know, and uh, kind of the other side of that would be things that are, you know, really meaningful to kids, like, like graduations and these rites of passage that, that are, everyone, everyone's sad about those. No one except the people that design the test and maybe not get paid this year are sad that standardized testing is canceled. And none of these seniors are walking across the stage and none of them are going to say to the, to the principal, thank you for raising my language arts score by 10% to, you know, over my four years of high school. Like, that's not what people <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> so I hope that these conversations continue, you know, and, and grading is a whole nother thing. I mean, just seeing what's going on in different districts throughout the country and, and how, how vastly different it is from district to district with what they've decided to do with assessment right now. And that's really brought up. What does an A mean? What does a B mean? Really? Why, why do we do it this way? Um, you know, you don't go to work and, and get A's and B's based on what time you turn things, you know, you're graded on the productivity and your contribution to the company or whatever. Um, and that should be the same. I hope that the teachers that have decided to engage in these conversations that previously weren't, I hope they continue to be engaged because we need to have the conversations and we need a diverse set of teachers and policymakers and families and students having the conversations together because usually it's either the person in charge or the loudest that's going to get what they want. Or the company that's making the most money off of it. Well, don't get me started with companies. Don't eat. Yeah. <laughs> the educational industrial complex. Um, it's like, yeah, you know, we look at some of these standardized curriculum the companies sell us and we say, you know, does this work for kids as we shift to um, whatever's next? Um, because so much of standardization relies on control and we got to let that go. Well, Ben Walker, this is an amazing conversation. Uh, you gave us lots to think about, uh, lots to talk about and lots for policymakers to, to hash over in the next few months as we prepare for next fall. Um, as always, this is great talking with you, Ben. Uh, stay safe up there in Alaska. Yeah, no, it's been great, man. I, and I hope to see you soon once this all craziness is over. Get a big old high five for you. And, and some beer. We need to do that. And some beer, yeah. If you like the podcast, rate us and write us a review. It helps people find us. And don't forget to sign up for our monthly email newsletter. You can find the details on our website, changethenarrative.net. 